You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. Good to see you this morning. Love to worship with you. Uh, Love to uh, meet new friends, see new faces every week. Uh, It makes me a little self-conscious as I get older. I'm afraid that sometimes I'm seeing new faces only because I'm getting older. Um, But I think the fact is uh, we have... Uh, new friends visiting us every week, and we like to say this is a place where friends become family. And I hope that you have uh, this morning found a warm welcome. And uh, I have to sometimes remind a few of you that you can only park in visitor parking for so long, okay? Uh, we've had some who've tried to do it for months, and that's just not allowed, okay? So, uh, no, we are so glad that you're here and would love to connect with you. Let me just say something real quickly about um, some of the events coming up. Jace mentioned in uh, our announcement time. And I don't want to belabor the point of those things, but I want to just kind of talk from a big picture perspective of the significance of events like Disciple Now uh, and even the Chili Cook-Off coming up. Uh, I know some of you are maybe kind of removed from some of those events because you're in a different stage of life and all of that, and you may feel like, well, you know, if I bring some snacks or whatever, that's really not a big deal, and, you know, is that really that important and that kind of thing. um, But I'm just going to tell you it is important. Uh, as small as your part may seem, it's really important. In fact, the Motleys, uh, Neil and Susan, were sharing with me before the early service this morning uh, about a funeral that they attended this last week for a young man who was killed in an auto accident. Um, and it was just not that long ago that he was invited to a Disciple Now event, and it was there that he gave his life to Christ. Um, so don't ever think um, that the little part you play... Um, it's not important. It is. Uh, and that's the beauty of the body of Christ and the church, uh, all working together, serving together, doing what they can do uh, for the sake of the kingdom of God and the sake of the gospel. Uh, and so I just I want to remind you of that. And that's true in your regular giving. I can't say how thankful I am for your faithfulness, your consistency, uh, your sacrificial uh, giving uh, over the last several years, particularly as God has been providing for Uh, the building that's being constructed over on the other side of the highway uh, for uh, the sake of the gospel through the Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And we're wrapping that up here at the end of this month. We'll uh, get that sent off to the IMB. And so if you've not yet given to Lottie Moon, let me encourage you to do that. And your generosity has enabled us to essentially double our goal this year for the Lottie Moon offering. And so thank you uh, for that as well. Well, this morning we're in John chapter 2. We're in a sermon series Uh, called Person of Interest. This is a study of the Gospel of John, and so far we have looked at John's purpose statement there in chapter 20. We've uh, come back to chapter 1 and looked at the prologue, uh, verses 1 through 18. We've been introduced to the ministry of John the Baptist. We've seen the first five disciples come to faith in Jesus and follow him. Uh, Last week we moved into chapter 2 where we found Jesus and his first disciples at a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And it was at this village wedding that Jesus performed the first of seven signs that we will see here in John's gospel as he uh, miraculously turned the water into wine. And I want to remind you as we make our way through John's gospel that John consistently uh, uses a particular word uh, of among about four words that are often translated miracle uh, into the English language. He uses the word simeon in the original language. It's translated signs, and I think that's very intentional. 
Because in his gospel, Jesus' miracles are always revealing something, always teaching something, always pointing us to something. Signs have a message. And the message of that first sign that we looked at last week is this, that in his coming hour of suffering and death on the cross, Jesus would fill up in himself the ceremonial law and make purification for the sins of the people. All these things, as confusing and as weird as they may seem, as we study our Old Testament... Those things are pointing to uh, Jesus, okay? That's why we say that there is a ribbon of redemption that runs throughout Scripture from the earliest pages of Genesis all the way to the end uh, of the book of Revelation. And that is uh, the same uh, is true here. He himself would be our purification. And once full atonement had been made uh, and our sins had been cleansed, then the wine of the joy of God's kingdom could flow. Uh, and so that brings us then to uh, the, the 13th verse of the second chapter of John this morning. We're going to start there and read down through the end of the chapter. So I hope that you will uh, follow along as I read. It says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it, that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, they're naturally thinking about the physical edifice there, the building. It's taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. So we continue to see this theme in John's gospel that the broken, uh, uh, the outcast, the marginalized uh, in Christ can be seen and known. Uh, and that's, that's a, a big part of what we are seeing here. But I want us to, to consider a very important question this morning. You know that I like to ask and answer questions. Uh, I think it's important for us to, to really come to terms, to grips with some things in life. And that comes through asking and answering questions. You know, so much of life is uh, decided uh, by whether or not you're asking the right questions. It seems that the world uh, in which we live is consistently asking the wrong questions. Uh, and sadly, the most important question we as people need to address is one uh, that precious few people uh, are thinking very seriously about. How can we worship God? How can we worship God? Most, most people aren't even thinking about that question, and if you were to ask them, they probably wouldn't even understand it completely. In fact, if I were to ask you this morning, how, how, what is worship to you? And that we would get a variety of answers. And, 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 and many of them would be right and they would be true. And, and, and so many times we think of music when we think of worship. We think of the music portion of the worship service. We think of other elements of worship. And all those things, yes, that, that, that's true. But it would be like me taking some of the ingredients of a cake and lifting up a sack of flour, for example, and saying, this is a cake. Okay, It's, it's a part of the cake, 
but in, it, in itself, by itself, it is not the cake, okay? And so, uh, but many times we think of different elements of worship, and we, we say that that is worship. That in itself is worship. That's, that's not necessarily true. Um, and so th- the problem in the world in which we live, especially here in North America, uh, in our Western way of thinking, uh, we have this idea we're so individualistic today. It's all about the individual. And so many people think, I can worship God any way I want to. And the way they think about worship makes it clear that they think that God should be grateful to receive whatever worship they choose to give him, however they choose to give it. It's all done on their terms, on our terms. And that naturally leads to a very consumeristic approach to the church. People will come to church services much like this every week, and they spend the majority of their time in the building critiquing the service. Critiquing the preaching, critiquing the singing, critiquing the temperature, the, you name it. Because we take this very individualistic approach to worship itself. And, and what is it really all about? To a lot of people today, it's really all about them. But we want to remind you often here that worship is really about an audience of one. You're not the audience. <laughs> and when I'm sitting out there with you, we're not the audience in worship. <laughs> there, there's an audience of one. The people up here, God uses them to be prompters to to, to help us together worship uh, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But the question of how we can worship God exposes, I believe, our thinking about who God is, who we are, where we stand with God, what worship is, what God requires, if he requires anything at all, what we receive from him in worship, if we're expecting to receive anything at all. If you study scripture, you'll find that God spends... Uh, a significant amount of time talking to his people about the right way to worship him. In fact, some of the sections of the Old Testament that seem a little odd to us and very detailed. I'm in the book of Leviticus right now, my personal reading through scripture, and you're just kind of like, this is some wonky stuff right here, okay? I mean, like, this seems odd to us in our way of, of thinking, and it just is very different. But God sent, spends a significant amount of time talking to his people about the right way to worship him. Maybe that's why most people, many people, find reading the Bible so difficult, confusing, maybe unsatisfying, because God is addressing questions that we're not asking, but we should be. So how can we worship God? Now, let's, let's, let's take a look at some background right quick. Anytime we study Scripture, it's important to, to look at the background of the text, especially the cultural context and all that. So in the Old Testament, God gave his people a form of worship that would teach them much about who he was, who they were, how they were to approach him, and what pleased him and what they could receive from him. Uh, at its heart, temple worship taught God's people some very important things. Number one, that God is absolutely holy, separate from sinners. You saw this earlier in the tabernacle, in the wilderness, as the people of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, and God instructed them, gave them very specific instructions for the the tabernacle, the place of meeting, uh, the place where heaven and earth uh, intersected, you might say. We've talked about that a little bit before. These are the things that God was teaching his people through tabernacle temple worship. Number two, we need to be forgiven and cleansed in order to worship God, to truly worship God. Number three, bloodshed is required to cover our sins and allow us to approach a holy God. Number four, if God is pleased with the sacrifice of atonement for sin, then we may approach him and offer up sacrifices of thanksgiving and prayers. 
And once we're reconciled to God, he feeds us and speaks to us from his word. So God set up his temple in Jerusalem to demonstrate these truths, not only to his own people, but also to the nations who were invited to come and gather around the temple in a surrounding courtyard, the courtyard of the Gentiles, it would have been called, where they could hear and see and learn about Yahweh, about God. Let's, let's stop and consider for just a moment, number one, how the Jewish leaders used the temple. Uh, not a lot unlike the day in which we live, there are those who use the church. In that day, there were Jewish leaders particularly who used the temple. Uh, they were opportunistic in many respects. So for God's people in Jesus' day, the question of how we can worship God was centered around the temple, this place of meeting, the place that, that, that housed the, the presence of God, as it were. And so sadly, the people who were in charge of the temple were firmly entrenched, entrenched religious professionals. They made their living from the temple, and it was pretty lucrative. And so like many religious professionals, even in our day, these priests had lost sight of why they existed, and they began to think that worship was for their personal benefit and their personal comfort. So, so to, to consider even more the context of this day, temple leadership had become a family dynasty. You've probably heard the name Caiaphas before. Caiaphas was the high priest, was the son-in-law of Annas, who had previously been high priest before he was deposed. After Annas was forced to step down, he remained politically well-connected and was able to ensure that his five sons and his son-in-law, Caiaphas, each took turns serving as high priest. So what that meant was, together, Annas and his sons and his son-in-law served as high priests for almost 40 years. So they had a pretty good grip on the temple, Right? Over the years of the reign of the house of Annas, over the temple, a, court, a couple of practices have been established and moved into the temple, into the temple courtyard. And when Jesus came uh, to Jerusalem for Passover, he confronted specifically these practices. Now one question that we have to deal with before we, we go any further, is this cleansing in John's gospel the same as the temple cleansing that we find in the other gospels? Here in John, this temple cleansing comes early in Jesus' ministry. I mean, we're just now into chapter 2. We've seen Jesus' first sign, and now we have this account of uh, this temple cleansing. And so it comes fairly early uh, in the chronology of Jesus' earthly ministry, during his first Passover in Jerusalem, uh, during his public ministry. Well, John would record, and we'll see this uh, through our study here, three Passover visits by Jesus to Jerusalem during his earthly ministry. The other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we call them the synoptic Gospels, uh, they all tell of a temple cleansing that Jesus did at the very ending, uh, at the very end of his ministry. In fact, just days before he died. Uh, in fact, in the other Gospels, the, the temple cleansing was the immediate cause, you might say, of the Jewish rulers conspiring to finally put Jesus to death after having talked about it for some time because he had confronted the very source of their power and position and wealth, and they didn't like that. So some scholars believe... I'm not one of them necessarily, but some scholars believe that John places the temple cleansing here early because of theological concerns. And, and, and he, they, they would say he reports it out of chronological order. Other scholars conclude that Jesus cleansed the temple twice. 
Once at the beginning of his ministry and again at the end. Now, this is not a first-tier issue. This is not something you need to email me about this week or anything like that, okay? Um, there, I believe that there is some fairly strong evidence in the language that Jesus uses here and in the, the reaction of the temple officials that there was perhaps more than one cleansing. Regardless, uh, Jesus was fundamentally confronting the same practices, animal selling and money changing. Now, uh, those two things, we're sitting here going, how in the world does this apply to us? I mean, that seems like a foreign thing, right? Animal selling and money changing, okay? Of all the problems we have in the modern-day church, I don't think these are two of them necessarily, all right? Um, but let, let's, let's unpack this a little bit. What about these animal sellers? Passover was a time of pilgrimage for all of God's people from all over the Roman world. More than two-thirds of the Jewish population of the Roman Empire actually lived what would be considered outside of the Holy Land. And so every Passover, that would mean uh, hundreds of thousands of pilgrims would be crowding into Jerusalem, which was really a relatively small city with a year-round population of somewhere around 100,000 people. So the the Passover then would bring more than 250,000 males uh, to the city of Jerusalem. In fact, Josephus, uh, a Jewish historian, puts the total number of people, uh, males and their families, at somewhere close to 3 million people. So obviously, the money-making potential of the temple was staggering. You think about that many people coming into the city of Jerusalem. So these pilgrims then would not be able to easily bring sacrificial animals with them in many cases, especially since such animals would have to be inspected by the temple priests and be declared uh, spotless in order to be used. Uh, Much more convenient then for these pilgrims to purchase animals from the authorized animal sellers whose animals have been pre-inspected and certified. And so in itself... Wasn't necessarily anything wrong with this practice, but Jesus specifically criticized the priests for authorizing this animal market to take place in the temple complex. This was problematic. Previously, it had been located uh, across the Kidron Valley over on the Mount of Olives, uh, but it was probably more convenient. Obviously, it would have been more profitable uh, to move the business into the temple complex. This would be like, we need a dollar general over there, right? That's that's more better, right? So the outer court, then, where these animals were being bought and sold was this court of the Gentiles, where Gentiles from the nations were supposed to be able to learn about God and worship him. Well, how could they worship in the middle of an animal market. I mean, this would be like in the middle of Canton, right? If you've been down to Canton, you know, what I'm t- it's like there's just so much going on here. How could they hear? How could they pray How, amidst the sound of sheep and oxen and buying and selling and all the things that were going on there? So you see the problem with this. And then these money changers. So if, if the animal sellers were there to provide pure animals for sacrifice, why did the the temple have money changers. Well, the Roman, uh, the Roman world was full of different kinds of coins made in different places. Uh, coins were made of precious metals, naturally, and their value was found in the metal content itself. And so some would have been pure and more reliable. Some would have been impure and imprecise. And is, as is always the case, when it relates to money, you can pretty well know that in and around that, there's going to be some kind of corruption. There's going to be some kind of fraud. There's going to be some kind of embezzlement. There's going to be some kind of corruption uh, when it relates uh, to money. And so 
Uh, in addition to that, uh, part of this, this uh, dishonesty and fraud perhaps would have been people shaving off the edges of coins to accumulate extra silver or perhaps extra copper. And so at that time, one of the best coins, uh, they would say one of the most reliable coins of the Roman world was the silver shekel of Tyre. T-Y-R-E. It was the only pure silver coin in that part of the Roman world. And so the annual temple tax was about half of one of these shekels of Tyre per Jewish man. Uh, And that's why it's believed that uh, when Jesus sent Peter to get a coin from the mouth of a fish uh, to pay the the tax for both of them, that one coin would have covered uh, both Peter and Jesus. Okay, So it would be about a half of one of those shekels of Tyre. So the money changers were in the temple, in the complex there, to weigh and evaluate and exchange foreign coins. Historians tell us that the money changers many times charged as much as 12% for this exchange. And that the the temple priests actually sold them their licenses to operate these money-changing booths. Just another money-making opportunity, right? So overall, this was a rather lucrative business, and the profiteering was incredibly excessive. That's what's kind of going on here. That gives you an idea of how these Jewish leaders were using the temple in that day. But more importantly, let's stop and consider secondly this morning how Jesus viewed the temple, especially in this particular context. Because what we see pretty clearly here is what we would call righteous anger. Now that may sound like an oxymoron to you. And the reason that it probably does is because most of the time when we give in to anger, it's anything but righteous. It's because we're full of ourselves, we're full of pride, and so we lose control essentially. But it's driven by by sinful appetites many times or uh, selfish pride and those sorts of things. That is not what is happening here with Jesus. I know some people look at this text and they're like, oh, this is that time that Jesus lost it, man. And he went off on those dudes in in the temple Like he like lost control that day. Jesus never lost control here. I can assure you. Okay, Jesus is not flying off the handle in some fit of rage where he's no longer in control of his emotions. That's not what's happening. So what is happening here? In this righteous indignation, we might call it. In fact, the Bible tells us that it's possible to be angry and sin not. Uh, There are some things that should anger us. that that, That should cause something to stir up inside us. Okay, but it's to be a righteous indignation. When you look at some of the things that are happening and have happened over the course of history in our world, you stop and consider that we're celebrating this, this uh, not celebrating, marking this crazy milestone recently of, of uh, the decision of, of Roe v. Wade. And while we're, I mean, we're certainly grateful that that's been overturned recently, I mean, you stop and think about the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of innocent lives that have been taken. I mean, I mean it, it's mind-boggling. That should, that should anger us. That, that should cause us to, to experience some righteous indignation. We should not be okay with that. But Jesus' reaction here to this activity in the temple, it's personal and it's passionate. He calls the temple my father's house. And the disciples connect his reaction to these animal sellers and these money changers to a text in Psalm chapter 69 where it says, Zeal for your house has consumed me. The right worship of God and the proper operation of the temple for that purpose were not minor side issues with Jesus. He is angry, 
And, and he is being eaten up with passion for his father's house. The Jewish leadership should have known that purity and faithfulness in worship practices were very important to God. So two of the most uh, startling stories from the history of God's dealings with his people dealt with the judgment of God as it related to impure or uh, uh, disordered worship, we would say. Think about Nadab and Abihu. Recognize those names? They were the first priests, sons of Aaron, who ministered in the first tabernacle under Moses. And Scripture tells us they offered up what was called strange fire before the Lord, unauthorized incense, and God struck them dead. I don't know how you view that, but I'm pretty sure when God strikes someone dead, that's a pretty big deal, right? Pretty significant. Okay, hundreds of years later, when King David was bringing the Ark of the Covenant to Jerusalem, remember there's a guy named Uzzah who reached out to steady the Ark with his hands, and God struck him dead. There were very specific, detailed instructions for how this was all to happen. That was not followed. God told Moses and Aaron that he must be regarded as holy by all who approach him. So worship is not just a matter of life and death. No, it's even more important than that. It's a matter of eternal consequence that lasts even beyond death. And so there's this righteous anger, righteous indignation. But then you also notice there's cleansing action. So D Jesus didn't just get angry. He took action. John tells us here that he made a, a whip of cords and he literally physically drove animals, animal sellers, money changers out of the temple. The right and proper worship of God was so important to Jesus that he took action to make things right. Now, this doesn't fit our popular notions of Jesus as the peaceful teacher of forgiveness and love, of gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Now, Jesus certainly was gentle and meek. He did teach forgiveness and love, to be sure. But we shouldn't be too quick to, to some, in some weird way, domesticate Jesus and to confuse meek with weak, gentle with passive and inactive. No, you see, but before the official beginning of his ministry, Jesus would have visited the temple as a worshiper in his father's house. But the time had come for him to enter as a Messiah, the owner and the ruler of the place. And in fulfillment of prophecy in Malachi chapter 3, in his first official act, he purged his temple of a stubborn infestation. And can you imagine being one of his disciples there that day? I have no doubt that they probably stood back, probably in stunned silence. With mouths wide open, they stared in astonishment as Jesus tossed furniture and slung coins. I mean, the, the lash of his whip sent livestock scurrying behind the unclean uh, owners as the temple's true owner, voices, his, his voice echoes through the courts, take these things away. And no doubt the disciples remembered, again, Psalm 69, 9, zeal for your house will consume me. I love what a Scottish theologian by the name of James Stewart uh, said of Jesus. He was the meekest and lowliest of all the sons of men, yet he spoke of coming on the clouds of heaven with the glory of God. He was so austere that evil spirits and demons cried out in terror at his coming, yet he was so gracious and winsome and approachable that the children loved to play with him and the little ones nestled in his arms. His presence at the innocent gaiety of a village wedding was like the presence of sunshine, no one was half so compassionate to sinners, and yet no one ever spoke such red-hot, scorching words about sin. 
a bruised reed he would not break. His whole life was love. Yet on one occasion he demanded of the Pharisees how they, uh, how they ever expected to escape the damnation of hell. He was a dreamer of dreams, a seer of visions, yet for sheer stark realism, he has all of our stark realists soundly beaten. He was a servant of all, washing his disciples' feet, yet masterfully he strode into the temple, and the hucksters and the money changers fell over one another to get away from the mad rush and the fire that they saw blazing in his eyes that day. He saved others, yet at the last himself he did not save there's nothing in history like the union of contrast which confronts us in the gospel and in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how Jesus viewed the temple in this context. But let's look thirdly this morning at how Jesus would replace the temple. Because as you continue to read here, the language gets a little bit strange, okay? The Jews demand a sign. That was, un that was not an uncommon thing for them. Uh, you see that throughout Scripture. Uh, you demand a sign. You demand a sign. And in response to, to, to Jesus' anger and his actions, the Jewish leaders demand this sign, some proof that he had been given authority by God to criticize and condemn their actions. What sign do you show for doing these things? In reality, their demand for a sign was really a dodge. They knew they were wrong. They, they knew that Jesus' condemnation of their action was just. But they were deeply committed to these corrupt practices. And rather than repent, they would rather turn the tables back on Jesus and put him on the spot. That was a common practice among the religious leaders of Jesus' day. Constantly trying to, to stump him with some crazy question or something, you know, as if they could po possibly do that. That was always the case. And so, what does Jesus, Jesus promises a sign. Jesus responds to their demand by promising a sign that leaves them, and I'm sure his own disciples, a bit confused. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, one of the slightly confusing issues, it's sometimes debated issues in John's gospel, everyone seems to agree that John reports seven signs. We talked about that, the seven signs of John's gospel that Jesus gives to authenticate his ministry and his identity. But scholars don't always agree on what those seven signs are. And again, this is not some first-tier issue that we need to squabble over. But the first sign, I think, is rather clear, is the turning of water into wine. The other signs, I think it's pretty safe to say, definitely include the healing of the official's son in chapter 4. We'll get there. Healing of the invalid in chapter 5. Uh, feeding the multitude in chapter 6. Healing the man born blind in chapter 9. And raising Lazarus in chapter 11, verses 1 through 44. But that's only six signs. And so some scholars add Jesus walking on the water in chapter 6, verses 16 through 21 as another sign. Although John never explicitly identifies this as a sign. And I would make the raising of Lazarus as the seventh sign. And then chapters 1 through 11, as we said in the introduction to the series, uh, get labeled as the book of signs. Okay, But you have to wonder, if Jesus couldn't here be promising the seventh sign, his resurrection. And some would suggest that uh, this was the eighth sign because the number eight in Hebrew is the number of new beginnings. Okay, so that's just something for you to talk about over lunch today. Okay, when y'all get it all figured out, you come inform me. All right, but here's the thing the disciples remember the sign, they remember. 
In promising this sign, Jesus was making a bold and vitally important claim. Jesus' body is the true temple. If the temple was the place where the the people could meet with God, we see that in Jesus The same lack of reverence and evil self-interest that led the Jewish leaders to set up a marketplace in the temple in Jerusalem, destroying its significance and its proper function, also led them to destroy Jesus' earthly body on the cross. Once they had destroyed the temple of Jesus' body, what happened? He raised it up again on the third day. So when he says this here, he's not talking about bringing in some hotshot construction crew to, to rebuild a temple in three days. He's talking about something much more significant. He's clearly here talking about his body, which is now the living and eternal temple of God. Our access to God, our worship of God is through Jesus Christ. He is the new temple. The disciples themselves didn't remember this until after Jesus was raised from the dead. It makes more sense that Jesus' own resurrection, this final definitive sign that, makes, that, 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 that seems to be what John is saying here in some sense or another. The story ends, in many ways, with the same note as the last story of turning water into wine, with a focus on the faith of his disciples. His disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. So John's focus then is on the disciples' faith, because again, the goal of his gospel is to call forth faith, belief in us. That's why the truth behind this whole thing echoes down through the ages to this very day even. Jesus gave clear signs of his deity and of his saving work, and he highlights these so that we can see who Jesus is, why he came, what he did, so that we might believe in him. So the question today is this, how is your temple? How's your temple? So do you believe in Jesus? And when I ask that again, I'm not talking about some mental ascent. Like, you, you believe it's going to be a nice day today, or you believe the Cowboys will win this evening, or, okay? I'm talking about, no, placing your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you are a believer, if you have, in fact, turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible says that you are in Christ, that you are a member of the body of Christ, and your body is a part of this living temple. The Holy Spirit dwells within you. This makes your body, your life, centrally important to how you worship God. And God gives us several points of application as we think about this profound truth from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where we're told, flee sexual immorality. Why is that so important? Paul goes on to write there to the Corinthians, he says, for every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. And it goes on to write, or do you not know that your body is a what? Is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's temple language again, isn't it? Who you have from God. You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God, that's worship language, in your body. So worship is not just something you're to come and do. You check it off on a box. It's who you are. It's how you were to live your life. That's one of the reasons that we stress among our staff and leaders. 
even more important than what you do and are doing for God, it is who you are and who you are being for him. Being precedes doing. It's worship. In Romans chapter 12, Paul, again, writing to the church at Rome, says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your, your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. There's that worship language again. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, so that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, good, acceptable, perfect worship. In the book of Hebrews chapter 13, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Here's the connection. Temple worship, tabernacle to, to where we're at today. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. That's the new Jerusalem. Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say, and to share what you have for such sacrifices. That's worship language are pleasing to God. Clearly. Based on those passages, our worship of God involves our whole lives. If for you, worship has merely become an hour of your time one day a week, then you're missing the point. As important as this time is, as important as this hour is, you are missing the point. And Pharisees, I will just tell you, are great at missing the point. The religious people appear to have it all together, crossing every T, dotting every I, but missing the point. So by God's grace, if we believe in Jesus Christ, <laughs> then the very lives that we live, the very lives that we live, or worship. It's how we worship him. So then that, that doesn't just happen on Sundays or at religious events or church activities. It happens every day. Every day of the week, every day of the year, every day of our lives. There should never be a secular and sacred divide in our lives. Where we're one thing over here and something else over here. That's messed up worship. If you do not believe in Jesus, if you've not turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, Scripture says that you are a slave to sin. The Bible says you're dead in your trespasses. Your body is a temple to idolatry. Your mind is not renewed and can only be conformed to the patterns of this world. So not unlike the activities that were happening there in the temple complex, when you commit yourself to the things of this world, the acquisition of more stuff and things that do not have any eternal significance, you're doing the very same thing. You're doing the very same thing. You can come to Jesus today. It's a step of faith. Be redeemed. 
transformed, reconciled to holy God, you'll see the work that he's done and believe in him. If we could for just a moment bow our heads and close our eyes as we enter into a time of decision. Well, I understand that there may be some aspects of today's text that are still a bit, a bit cloudy for you, maybe a little confusing. I want to make this as simple as I can. The only place, the only place where we as sinful human beings can meet with a holy God, be reconciled to him, is not a building made with hands of bricks and mortar. No, it's in the very person of Jesus Christ. That's why he said here, you tear this thing down and in three days I'll raise it up. He's talking about himself. He is where sinful human beings meet with and can be reconciled to holy God. So if you've never turned from your sin to faith in Jesus Christ, I invite you to Take that step of faith today. It means understanding that you are a sinner in need of a Savior, that you can't save yourself. That even on your best day, you can't be good enough. So you're trusting, relying upon another, the Lord Jesus Christ, who died in your place, paying the penalty, the debt that you owed. my scripture says he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him that's the great exchange of the gospel Father we thank you and praise you for your word today and we thank you for this amazing picture that we see of uh, the Lord Jesus the passion the authority yet as we continue to study John's gospel we continue to see Jesus throughout his earthly ministry reaching out to the poor, the broken the sinful, the, the marginalized graciously, lovingly, gently calling them to faith to believe to be reconciled to God from the most religious of his day to the, the, the poorest of the poor. If there's anyone here today that has never trusted you as Savior and Lord, I pray that today by your Holy Spirit and the power of your word, they'd be drawn to you. For those here today who are hurting, searching, seeking for answers, for some of the very complex issues and matters of life, I pray that they would find their hope in you and in you alone. Lord, I thank you today that we are no longer slaves, slaves to fear, slaves to sin, as we place our faith and trust in you. We love you, we thank you, and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. 
For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.